Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. He had ordered just what she would have ordered herself. Maybe the only thing on the menu she would have eaten enough of to discover that she was hungry. The menthol cigarettes. The way he had kissed her goodnight. Exactly as she had wanted to be kissed. And, you've got a long plane ride tomorrow. He knew she was going home because she had told him. But how had he known she was going by plane? Or that it was a long ride? It bothered her. It bothered her because she was halfway to being in love with Ed Hamner. I know what you need. Like the voice of a submarine captain toiling off fathoms, the words he had greeted her with followed her down to sleep. Hello again, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host, and I know what you need. You need to hear a review of another Stephen King work. So here I am to give you what you need as I continue my reviews of short stories from the Night Shift Anthology. And yes, I'm reviewing the short story entitled, I Know What You Need. This is one of the most recent works compiled in Night Shift. It was originally published in Cosmopolitan Magazine in September 1976, just about two years before Night Shift was published. Now by that time, King had become a published novelist with both Carrie and Salem's Lot on bookshelves. Later that same year, the first movie based on King's stories would hit theaters. King was a success, and so he had graduated and no longer had to have short fiction published in between the naked pictorials of Cavalier Magazine, a magazine I'd never even heard of until I started reviewing King. Now, King was in Cosmo, a magazine slightly less trashy, but a magazine more aimed at respectable women. Women who may read this story and then feel compelled to go out and buy one of Stephen King's books or watch his movie. It was a savvy marketing move, though Cosmo may also have benefited from having a Stephen King story in its pages as Buzz for Brian De Palma's movie version of Carrie Built. King was also savvy in his choice of a short story to put in Cosmo. Look at all the stories I've reviewed thus far from Night Shift. All of them feature male main characters, many written from a masculine first-person point of view. King knew what the readers of Cosmo needed to read, a story about women, and this is the only one in Night Shift to have a female protagonist. This is savvy not only due to the target readership of the magazine, but also, when the story was originally published, King would be almost exclusively known as the author of Carrie. With De Palma's film on the horizon, King was smart to try and capitalize on the spotlight his novel would receive. More, readers who knew about the upcoming film may be more interested if they knew the author from a similar story about a young woman and psychic powers. And, to add a bit of enticement for the Cosmo girl, this story has a whirlwind fantasy romance, but one that does turn into a nightmare. I Know What You Need tells of college student Elizabeth Rogan. She is an outgoing student, attractive and social, but she attends on a scholarship, one that is at risk due to her C average in sociology. If she doesn't do well on her final exam, her collegiate career may end before she gets her diploma, and that's when Edward Jackson Hamner Jr. walks into her life. His first words to Elizabeth are, I know what you need. And he really does, starting with her favorite type of ice cream and then following up with the answers to all the questions on her sociology final. He's a bit of an awkward guy, described in the prose as skinny, twitchy, with dirty hair and mismatched socks. He's even described as vaguely ugly, though when he smiles, he's almost cute. 
But his friends, his background, it's all a mystery to Elizabeth. What's not a mystery is Ed's intentions. Like most boys, Ed wants to ask Elizabeth out. But Elizabeth has a boyfriend. Of course she does. And one to whom she plans to get married. Ed takes this information well, and that should be the end of the story, but it isn't. That summer vacation, Elizabeth's boyfriend Tony worked on a road crew and was killed by an out-of-control car. Elizabeth is almost out of her mind with grief for a few weeks, and then out of nowhere appears Ed. He shouldn't be there as Elizabeth had gone to Maine for the summer, but there he was. And again, he knew everything she needed. What she needed to eat, what she needed to hear, everything he needed to do to make her fall in love with him. It doesn't happen immediately. After that evening, Ed and Elizabeth don't see each other for several months. Ed again knew what Elizabeth needed. His absence and her longing to see him made her love him more, so when he showed up in October, she was his. And their courtship seemed perfect as well. Ed seemed totally right for her. He always wanted to see the types of films she enjoyed. When she felt down, he seemed to have already planned events that would cheer her up. He knew the dances she liked, he treated her well, he didn't even press her for sex. King wrote, quote, He honestly seemed to want what she wanted when she wanted it, and things progressed. End quote. At this point, you have to be thinking the same thing I was when I read this story. Well, this is a change of pace. The courtship, how perfectly Ed treats Elizabeth, the way she's falling head over heels for this gawky social misfit, all feel like a really stereotypical, flat, uninteresting romance novel. It was certainly a marked change from the 250 pages that came before a Night Shift in terms of tone, topic, and character. In this story, Really, Elizabeth is the only well-defined character, and we learn her innermost thoughts, including her hesitation to marry Tony and her slow estrangement from her roommate Alice that grows as Elizabeth gets closer with Ed. But this is a Stephen King story, and that knowledge couldn't be shaken. Something was up with Ed. He was too perfect, too able to anticipate and fulfill all of Elizabeth's needs. He's also evasive when Elizabeth asks him about his family, his past, at least on the pages we see. From the early pages, I know Ed has a secret, and I want to know what it is. And, it turns out, Elizabeth's roommate Alice is equally curious. She's caught Ed in a couple of lies, primarily that Ed had claimed it was Alice herself who told Ed about Tony's death. Now, Alice hadn't seen Ed outside of class, so this raises Alice's suspicions and she hires a private detective to look into Ed Hamner. And she finds out Ed isn't who he says he is. Alice doesn't know how, but the detective's findings convince her that Ed is using a psychic power or some other mojo to peek into Elizabeth's head, and that the man she has been dating for months is a carefully fabricated act, one intended to give Ed what he needs, and has needed his whole life. Love. How is Ed doing this, and what will Elizabeth's reaction be? Well, for that constant listener, you need to go pick up Night Shift and read the short story. Because I know what you need. And that's to discover some of these things for yourself. I'm here to provide a review and analysis of the story, not to be a Cliff's Notes retelling. But I can tell you, it's not demons, Cthulhu monsters, vampirism, demonic possession, or anything else like we've seen in Night Shift. It's something a bit more old-fashioned. Something familiar to the non-horror reader. And it's not at all gory. Again, keeping with the tone a Cosmo girl would appreciate. Now, I don't want it to come off like I'm even certain King wrote this specifically for Cosmopolitan. In fact, I suspect King wrote this a few years before its publication. 
there's a reference to a national gas shortage, and that was a big deal in the U.S. in the late 1973 and early 74. That it's referenced in a present tense sense makes me think that that's when King wrote this story, and either it was refused for publication by Cavalier, or, more likely, King became so busy with working on novels that he sat on this short story and then picked I Know What You Need as the best fit for this new, more mainstream publication outlet. That time would also fit very well with what I know of King's writing. If you remember my review of his first novel, Carrie, he wrote that on a dare when a friend told him he seemed to only be able to write macho stories about men, stuff like The Rage. His reaction was to prove the friend wrong, and the result was Carrie. Well, here we have a story that features a college girl, and it's written with a confidence that shows an author comfortable with his subject. He discusses love and marriage from a female point of view that feels honest to this male reader. Elizabeth has more depth and characterization in these 23 pages than Susan did in all of Salem's Lot, though she's not as deep and three-dimensional as Carrie White. King's wife Tabitha famously helped her husband with his portrayal of female characters in Carrie, and given the time period, I wonder if she had a hand in this as well. Or, perhaps through Carrie, King developed a confidence to write female main characters. Certainly, he's written several since, such as Dolores Claiborne, or Donna Trenton from Cujo, or Jesse from Gerald's Game. His works with female leads are the minority, but it does go beyond Carrie, and here's the second published work that fits the mold. King's writing is also very smooth here. The story reads very quickly, despite being one of the longer chapters in Night Shift. The prose is descriptive, and I was never left wondering about setting, even though the story takes place at both a college and a town in Maine. But the best thing about this story is its hook. Every page, I was in suspense to know Ed's secret. I was practically screaming at the page to tell me. But again, this was one of the longer stories, so King drew it out. I just kept thinking of that quote from Willy Wonka. The suspense is terrible. I hope it will last. Finally, this story, unlike so many of these throwaway Night Shift tales, is actually about something. Elizabeth is being manipulated by Ed. We, the reader, may not know how, but we know he is, and she can't see it. But he's doing it for her. He wants to make her happy so she will love him. Does that mean he loves her? Or is it a greedy desire Ed has, his manipulation of Elizabeth being all about him, even if it seems to make her happy as well? In some ways, you could see Ed as a sort of psychic stalker spying on Elizabeth's thoughts versus her body. But by the same token, how will Elizabeth react? He's given her everything she wants, before she even knows she wants it. Even once Ed's secret is revealed, could Elizabeth still be happy in a relationship with someone who's prying on her innermost thoughts or some other way knowing what she will want if it means she gets everything she wants? Is Ed her perfect lover, or is he a villain? Well, by the story's end, he's very much revealed to be a bad guy. But before the final pages, I had my doubts. And some of the best stories come when two people are in opposition, and each is doing what they feel is right. King's stories kind of stray away from that. They're often about prime evil monsters, be they vampires, rabid dogs, or demonic laundry machines. But here, Ed has more dimension, somewhat akin to Carrie in that way. Like King's telekinetic protagonist, Ed is an outcast due to physical appearance as well as his personality. He isn't as ridiculed and ostracized as Carrie was, but he and Carrie share a psychological scar of rejection. 
Yet Alice clearly thinks Ed's manipulations are evil. She even equates them to rape. But even as a very minor character, Alice has her own motivations. She says she loves Elizabeth, and while that probably means in a sisterly way, I do have to wonder if there might also be a lesbian attraction as well. Alice is said to be bookish and not date very much, which could be playing to a 70s stereotype. Now, Alice does say she doesn't get jealous of Elizabeth's boys, but just because she's not jealous doesn't mean she's not attracted to or in love with Elizabeth. And I end this book really not being sure of Alice's true motives, but her end goal is to look out for her roommate. But really, all we ever know about Alice beyond being an A student is that she's reading The Story of O, which is an erotic novel from the 1950s that does contain lesbian encounters. But I think King had a different reason for name-dropping the story of O in his tale. If you've read that novel, and not just seen the Skinamax films that bear its name, it's an entire BDSM story about a woman who gives up her entire personality to be the slave of a man she loves. Throughout the novel, she becomes more exploited and handed to a new master, who then she comes to love as well. The story has a bit of a tragic ending, but... I could easily equate the story of O to I Know What You Need. Both really are about male enslavement of women. Sure, Ed doesn't push Elizabeth for sex, he knows she wouldn't want to be pushed. But in the end, he's manipulating her into loving him the way O's masters command her and she thinks it's love. By putting that book in his story, King is telling us very early on that no matter how pure Ed may think his motives are, his means are false. And he's not loving Elizabeth, but controlling her, just as sure as if he had her on a leash. More, Elizabeth seems like a character who's always in relationships with men who dominate her. We see her first boyfriend, Tony, pressuring Elizabeth into marriage. And she even has a dream of Tony burying her alive. That's how smothered she feels. Even without supernatural influence, what she needs is to be led. So here comes Ed, who's the master of subtly leading, controlling Elizabeth. She started, at the end, to rebel against Tony. She even admits to feeling a slight bit of relief at his death. Is she strong enough to do the same with the master of manipulation? Now that's a subtle but powerful message to have in this short story, and surprising that it came from King, who I've called out for having stock female characters in some of his other works. This is a deep character exploration, and a complex issue to which female readers may connect. But for all its strengths, this story suffers from its short format. Really, I do believe that what King has here could have been expanded to novel length. We could have witnessed in much more detail Ed's seduction of Elizabeth, the way he uses his powers over her. Act 1 could be Ed and Elizabeth meeting while Elizabeth had her boyfriend, continuing through the summer vacation. Let us see Elizabeth's submissive nature in a standard text. This would draw us in even more to her character and her plight. It could even give Alice and maybe some other characters a bit of depth on their own. Later in the short story, we're given the scoop on Ed, and it's so rushed that were it not so inventive, did it not feel so right, it would be barely passable. Ed's character is revealed to be as deep as Elizabeth's, and even more damaged than her compulsion to submission. I would have enjoyed reading this in a longer format that allowed us a bit of time to revel in Ed's backstory. But for God's sake, the worst concession King makes to this short story format is how Elizabeth finds out that Ed isn't on the level. It's a data dump of major proportions. 
that one day Elizabeth returns to her room and Alice has nearly all the answers ready to go is a terrible storytelling decision. First, it takes the underdeveloped Alice and makes her pivotal in a way that doesn't expand on her characterization. Second, it completely robs Elizabeth of any action in the story. Despite being a character I like on a personal level, King leads her through the story like she was his slave on a leash. She goes from plot point to plot point, but she doesn't do anything. In a longer format, I'd have liked to see Elizabeth be active and learn about Ed on her own. Maybe Alice has concerns and Elizabeth writes her off as gay. Maybe she even moves out of the dorm due to the fight and moves in with Ed, only to be left with a lingering doubt. Then she starts to pay attention and realizes that Ed's words and actions are more than just nice guy normal. Maybe we expand the scope of the story and get to see Ed manipulating someone else as well, and Elizabeth starts to wonder if he's doing it to her. Having them live together creates suspense, because she starts to see his machinations and probes more into his background, but she has to do it all in secret because obviously Ed has some sort of power. How dangerous could he be if he finds out she suspects him? See. With very little extrapolation, this could be expanded at least to novella length, or movie length, but strangely, this has never been adapted outside of Dollar Babies. And hell, if King were writing this today, maybe it would be 750 pages. But as it is, that Alice hired a private detective, one who we never see on the page he's just referred to, is lazy storytelling and robs Elizabeth of any action in this story. More. The lie that had raised Alice's suspicions that she had told Ed of Tony's death is a clumsy lie. Surely Ed must have known if Alice and Elizabeth are roomies that such a topic would come up and his ruse would be exposed. Then what Alice discovers about Ed involves some fundamental facts about the boy's past. Now on the page, early into their relationship, we see Elizabeth ask Ed about his family, his past, and he demurs, changing the topic. But the story allows time to pass freely. Elizabeth and Ed date for months, and it's January or February of the following year when we get to the next actual scene. Now during that time, surely Ed gave a bit more of his own history. She had to have asked, and he couldn't have avoided the topic forever, but we're led to believe he did just that. The final weakness of the story, though, is that it's clearly a bit of an aping of an old Twilight Zone episode. The story is called, I Know What You Need. Well. King obviously knows about an old episode of that series called What You Need. That episode focused on an old man who could see the future. He used it for benevolent purposes, giving people what they needed to make their lives better. From the title to Ed's ability to know what Elizabeth needs, there's clearly a beyond coincidental resemblance between the two stories. Though Ed is not benevolent, and he can't see the future. Still, I've exposed the flaws I see in the story. But I really put them not on the author, but the brevity of the format. For the length it is, for what it is, either a free story in Cosmo that women read during a pedicure, or a quick read in Night Shift, this is a good story, and it's second only to the woman in the room for my favorite short story in this anthology. This is one story King got very right. And this story has a similarity to another Night Shift story, The Man Who Loved Flowers. There, a psychotic character kills people, thinking they're the woman he loved. His murderous, stalker-like obsession is not dissimilar to Ed's obsession with Elizabeth. And I'll be reviewing that for my final podcast on Night Shift. But that's actually several months away. I only have three more short stories to review in this collection. 
Children of the Corn, Last Rung of the Ladder, and The Man Who Loved Flowers. But it's going to be a bit before I get to those. After about four months of releasing weekly a Stephen King story review, I'm going to step back and let Stuart in LA return as host of Books and Nachos for a while. If you haven't listened to some of the archived episodes at booksandnachos.com, Stuart is my co-host over at our movie review podcast, which you can hear at nowplayingpodcast.com. On that show, we've been reviewing the Planet of the Apes movies for our spring donation drive. And next week, Stuart will be here reviewing the original French science fiction novel on which that Charlton Heston film is based. Then, for the month after that, he's going to be reviewing books in the Arthur C. Clarke 2001 series, while at NowPlayingPodcast.com we review the Stanley Kubrick film and its 1980s sequel. But I know what you need, and that's more Stephen King reviews to come. And they will, constant listener, I promise you that. I will be back in a few months to finish off the Night Shift anthology, and then we can look forward to a review of King's next novel, his epic The Stand. And in the meantime, if you need more King, come to NowPlayingPodcast.com. Last Tuesday, we released our review of the only film King sued to get his name removed from, The Lawnmower Man. <laughs> Listeners have called it one of our best podcasts to date, and that's really saying something, as we've been podcasting for seven years. Next week, we're looking at The Lawnmower Man 2, Beyond Cyberspace. And then later this summer, we're reviewing King's directorial debut, and only directing gig to date, Maximum Overdrive, and the 1990s TV movie Trucks. So head to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear all those Stephen King movie reviews. And I also hope you'll join Stuart here for the next month or so, while he reviews some pretty hard science fiction novels. And if you want to read along with him, please remember not to always head to Amazon, but instead to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. But for all its strengths, this story shuffer... dupe. But for all its strengths, this suffers... Dupe, let us see Elizabeth's submissive nature. Dupe, let us see Elizabeth's... Let us see if...